Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. If you or anyone that you know is struggling with pornography addiction, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com. There you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction or any type of compulsive sexual behavior. And the response continues to be good to the coupon code, Happy New Year, all one word. Um, you use that for Pathback Recovery. You get $50 off the entire program. So I'm going to keep that going. Maybe uh, maybe it'll be a Happy New Year for uh, another month or two. So although then I just I'm a horrible salesman right there, which is actually going to come into play today. Um, but uh, that way, no, there's no sense of urgency. No one will go take advantage of that. So who knows? The Happy New Year code may disappear later today. Actually, that's not true. But uh, please go take advantage of Happy New Year, all one word, $50 off the Pathback recovery program. And um, I had mentioned after, I think, a couple of podcasts ago that um, I've been on a couple of people's podcasts and uh, would encourage you to go check those out. There's one on Monica Packer's About Progress, where I talk about the emotional baseline and acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, go look up one called Marriage Therioke. That one was a blast. Rich and Celeste Davis from the Marriage Laboratory. And they broke down the uh, the popular song, You're So Vain by Carly Simon, and then brought me on to talk about narcissism, which appears to be the um, the theme of that song. And also I did, uh, did an interview on leadingsaints.org. So if you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I would really encourage you to go find um, a gentleman named Kurt Frankham's leadingsaints.org podcast and website. He just does an amazing job giving some training to um, leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But just kind of a fun thing on that note, there was uh, it was a few days later, and I come out of a session. I had had an early morning session, and I just noticed I had been tagged on Facebook. And it was a friend of mine, and she said, um, I know Tony Overbay, and he really knows his stuff. And it was attached to an article that said three myths about overcoming pornography addiction or something to that effect. And I thought, this is kind of funny. Why did she tag me? I mean, I love the compliment. And so then I go follow the link, and the article was about me. And it was about uh, the interview that I did on LeadingSaints.org. And so I was very grateful for that. So that's on a site called LDS Living. And um, and what I really like about that is the the author, her name is Katie and I think Katie Lambert, and she wrote this uh, nice article that summarized the podcast interview that I did on LeadingSaints.org. And so it's just a nice, easy, shareable link that you can send somebody if uh, if anybody is struggling with pornography addiction. Or also in that that interview, I talked a whole lot about um, the concept of of shame and how that's not a good thing. And then that actually led to I did my first live webinar um, or live web thingy training Facebook Live event. On Friday, and that also is up on um, Kurt Frankham's Facebook page, which is the LeadingSaints.org um, or Leading Saints Facebook page. And I talked about the concept of harm reduction. So I would uh, again highly encourage you to go check that out. And so just a whole bunch of stuff there. And feel free to stop by TonyOverbay.com and sign up to find out more about um, exciting things coming. And I'll try to get all of those things up on my website at some point. So let's get to the episode today. Uh, story time. So I get a lot of questions about career change. 
and in particular, my career change. And I honestly, truly struggle to talk about myself, um, which is funny as I announced that I'm on episode number 103 of my podcast and just told you to go listen to all these interviews about me. So I know that that sounds kind of a bit like uh, like an oxymoron. But, and, and I even think that when my wife hears this part, when she's listening, she will literally do a spit take. So I so hope that you are outside on your run, Wendy. And so you only spit propel on the road and not on the treadmill or in the car. And if you did, my bad. But where I'm going with this is I'm a quitter. I, I totally quit. I did 10 years in computer software, and then I quit. And uh, I think this is the part where I feel like just in that uh, ramping up, I'm supposed to say, and I'm not proud of that fact, but I kind of am. I mean, if you technically look at it, I, I quit. I gave up on a career that I had pursued for a decade. I had, sent, I had spent 10 years in going to trainings and learning as much as I could about different uh, software uh, sales techniques and and Dale Carnegie and how to win friends and influence people and and I was going to become very technically savvy so that I could get in there and and talk with the print journalists at the time and I could wow them with my technical expertise as well as my charm and make the sale and and those sort of things and so I did I quit I, I quit that entire industry and and so the travel was good um, the money was pretty good I got to go all over the world I did trade shows in Russia I've eaten hot dogs off of a Russian hot dog street vendor cart. I'm not very proud of that. I still wonder about the after effects some 25 years later. Um, but I got to see the world in Europe and Japan and, and these sort of things. I enjoyed the presentation part, but I just didn't enjoy the job. And even when the money was good, uh, it just wasn't very satisfying. And I found myself just basically just watching the the hours just tick by, waiting for the end of the day. And even as I would go on trade shows, that that became pretty pretty routine and pretty mundane. So at some point then, I knew I knew I had to do something different. And yes, I quit. I probably waited a few years longer than I should have. Um, I should on myself, didn't I? But I did before I quit. So how did I know? And you know, here I quit on this major career that I had invested a decade in. But yet, you know, I can hang on to this. Uh, I haven't, uh, I haven't quit in a hundred mile race, or I haven't quit in a in a twenty four hour endurance run. And so, for some reason, then I look at that as that's the, that's an important thing. Where then there are people who they will they will stop a race at any point, but they've been locked into their career forever. So, what is it that just makes it okay for us to quit? When is it okay? And I wanted to go to the data. I wanted to go to the evidence based research around when is it okay to quit. So shortly after my software career, too, I did go back to school to get my master's in counseling. That was that kind of that call that I felt. And I but I did not I, I did not immediately go into therapy or counseling. That would take many, many years. The whole licensing process itself is an entirely different episode. But I started my own computer disk duplicator business and that was OK, but it led to a series of stressors. I mean, it freed up some time, which was nice. But boy, I started just getting hit with multiple lawsuits. I would get sued for these uh, these patent infringement lawsuits that at first I chose to defend and I would spend money on to defend only to learn down the road that uh, that was just a way for larger companies to get smaller companies out of the industry. So here I wasn't feeling very authentic there as well, but trying to, to do something that would provide for my family. Um, I, I invested or actually was one of the founders of a large nut and bolt company that's still out there. And uh, the product is amazing. It's this uh, thing called Perfect Lock Bolt. And, but I even attended fastener trade shows. Um, I, boy, I, I toured the Midwest. I went to steel companies. 
Um, I loved this idea. We were going to bring jobs to America and we were going to use American steel. And we had, you know, changing the, the hundreds of years old fastener industry. And I tried everything I could do to get passionate about the fastener business, just as I had tried to get just passionate about the disc duplicator business. And just like I had tried to get passionate about the software business and none of that was just kind of scratching that itch. So yes, I quit. And I, I started doing more and more therapy. And the more therapy I did, the better and better it just felt. And even though there's very stressful things that you go through, um, it felt more core to my true values and the things that I wanted to accomplish. And then now we can enter some cliches, though, of do the thing that you love, and then hopefully you will be able to um, provide for your family there as well. A quick side note, though, I do want to say, I've never really talked about this one. I want to get my uh, friend Jim on sometime. Um, but during that time, that computer software time, uh, somewhere around year six or seven when things really were doing okay, but you could start to see that, oh, I don't know if things are going to be okay on the horizon. Jim and I were big Sacramento Kings fans, the basketball team. And at the time, if anybody who was listening is a NBA fan, this was the, the Chris Webber, the, the Jason Williams, the Mike Bibby, the Vladi Divots. That, that was this. Um, the Kings were just so good. And so we started this fan site. And this was still back in dial-up modem days. And so um, web pages took a long time to load. My buddy Jim was a really good web programmer. I had been writing a humor column for several years at that point. So we combined and we wrote this. Uh, we had this uh, website called kingsuperfans.com. And it was before the, um, there were even a lot of fan sites. There, it was before blogs, that sort of thing. And we ended up just having such a fun time with that. And uh, I would do guest appearances on sports radio. And then when people were able to start searching for things, it was funny. Um, at one point, uh, the Lakers uh, basketball star Kobe Bryant had gotten in some trouble. And I think they were coming to play the Sacramento Kings in the playoffs. The Kings and the Lakers had this huge rivalry. And the New York something, Daily News, New York Times, one of those was doing an article on the rivalry. And they must have just Googled and they found me and uh, thought that I was this legitimate beat writer for the Sacramento Kings, not for a, a fun, comical fan site. And so I was interviewed on there. And if you Google my name, if you go many, many pages in the deep, deep down there, you'll find me commenting on um, Kobe Bryant and, and his time with the Lakers and this thing that he had gone through. But the King Superfans thing was just so fun. That was one of those things where I did feel passionate about it. But at that time, it wasn't something that was financially viable. Although we did win several Dottie Awards. There were these dot-com awards here in Sacramento. We won for best uh, overall website one year we won for best sports websites but i but i only mentioned that not just to not just to add to story time but that was one of those things where maybe um right thing at the wrong time because right as we were starting to as the tech crash really was hitting and jim and i were needing to start uh, looking for other jobs and and we both had young families and and the writing for the site just became a little bit too much about a year later, that is when the blogs started kind of coming on and there were a couple of sports blogs for almost every NBA city and we just couldn't keep up with the King Super fans. Even after we had won these awards and we'd had this nice following and that sort of thing. And uh, within a year or two after that, um, there was a one of the big uh, sports conglomerates then went and bought one of every blog in every city and those are still around as kind of the local sports, uh, the NBA kind of hubs for these teams. And so, you know, that is one of those, the thing that got away, what things could have been. So that would have been pretty funny. I would not be a therapist doing the virtual couch podcast, but I'd probably be on year number 10 or whatever of trying to write witty uh, articles about the Sacramento Kings. So I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm happy that that didn't work out. I guess I am happy that didn't work out because I'm grateful to be doing what I'm doing right now. But the topic of the day, 
Mastering the Art of Quitting. So I did find, I, I wanted to dig and find some research or evidence-based data around when does it become okay to quit. And I found uh, some information on, and I'll link to the article, it was in Psychology Today by Peg Streep. She talks about ways to tell that it's the right time to quit. But if you get to know Peg Streep, she has a wonderful book called Mastering the Art of Quitting, Why It Matters in Life, Love, and Work. So I'm going to be referring to an article that she wrote on Psychology Today that's called Eight Ways You Can Tell That It's the Right Time to Quit. Um, and so and so, where she kind of starts the whole thing is she says it's, it's no surprise or it will surprise no one that the right time question is one that almost every interviewer asks her, and we're talking about Peg, when she is asked about her book Mastering the Art of Quitting. And, and she even says, and I love this line because this is where I get, you know, people want to ask me all the time, what should I do? And she says, imagine how easy and unstressed life and decision making would be if there was a formula that was just foolproof, a one size fits all strategy for knowing absolutely and positively when to bail on something, whether it's a relationship or a job or a goal or a venture or a life path. Because, I mean, that's what we would all want. And that would make life very easy, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? But just like I like to tell my clients often, there's no magic pill or magic bullet. She says that there's no magic answer. There's only one person that can decide with certainty when the right time to quit at hand is. And you already probably know who that one person is. It is you, the person listening to this podcast right now. Um, She goes on to say no waffling or weaseling, but you need to know as much as you can about yourself to make the best decision. And I think that's a big key right there. You need to know about yourself and you need to be honest with yourself. Um, and I'm again, if you need to go in and talk to a therapist about it, but you need to find somebody that you can be authentic with. And, and this is going to be about you because if you take that, your question of, should I quit? Should I not quit? And you take that out too. And we're just going to call them for right now, the peanut gallery. That's any of those, um, who you go to for advice, whether it's your family or friends or that sort of thing. There's a lot of psychology going on, even when you ask your friend for help. I don't know if you ever thought about that. But when you ask your friend for help, your friend actually wants to sound smart. They want to, they want to be there for you. That's why they're your friend. So if they're saying, if you're saying to them, I don't know what I should do. Should I quit? I mean, your friend even subconsciously wants to provide an answer because they want to be that person that, that you will continue to go to. So they're going to throw out an opinion. You know, they're going to know you shouldn't quit. You've got things good. You just need to, to you know, uh, water the grass underneath your feet. Um, the grass is not always greener. And are you doing all you can right now? And then that's what will cause us sometimes to think, man, that's right. Am I? But your friend or the peanut gallery, whoever it is, doesn't know all the the stress or the thoughts or the things that have kind of gone up to you even asking them is now a good time to quit. So here's a bit of good news, Peg says. Figuring out the right time can be made easier by considering the following. And these are all drawn from research. So she suggests you use these to troubleshoot your thoughts and behaviors. Your brain is the biggest obstacle. And 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 this is something that I, I love to talk about if you listen to any of the Virtual Couch podcast is your brain. And I want us to already take a look at um, when we're going to say your brain wants you to do this or your brain wants you to do that. Sometimes people like that, you know, I will hear feedback of saying, I don't like to think that I'm not in control of my brain. And you know what? I, yeah, that's a, that's a, a, it's an interesting thought. It's maybe a new thought for a lot of people, but it's one that we just need to bring some awareness to. And now that we have that data, what are we going to do with it? So right now, for the sake of the next uh, 20, 25 minutes, I want you to just look at that's your brain is trying its best to protect you. Your brain is trying to keep you away from anything that is uncomfortable. So Peg, Peg goes on to say, your brain is the biggest obstacle. And she says, I know you've been raised on a steady diet of lessons on grit and perseverance, but the truth is that the culture is really preaching to the choir. Um, she said, yeah, there are lazy people or slackers or folks who don't step up. But in general, human beings are hardwired to hang in and not to leave or quit. 
All those adages like winners never quit and quitters never win aren't really necessary. And what's hard, and this is according to Nobel Prize winning uh, uh, works of Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, and I'm going to do an article or a podcast on Daniel Kahneman here in a little bit, um, something on a concept called regression to the mean, which is absolutely amazing. But uh, what, what these Nobel Prize winners said is that we are a group of, we are a conservative, a conservative and loss-aversive bunch, meaning that we are pretty conservative with the things that we do. We're going to kind of hold steady um, in our, you know, where things we feel are, are pretty comfortable. And we are really loss-aversive. So we are doing whatever we can to avoid loss. So how you think is actually what provides the super glue that keeps you stuck. And, and I love that Peg Stoop goes into, I've done actually a couple of, uh, when, I've, when I've keynoted a couple of conferences, I love to just start by giving some differences of men and women. And, uh, and she goes into some of the stuff that I love. It's the, um, she says, you can thank our ancient forebears because there wasn't an evolutionary advantage to have the Paleolithic hunter crawl into his cave if he didn't bag the caribou or to give up if he had failed to ford a raging river for the first time. And, uh, and so I kind of added to that. Many of our habits uh, of our minds derive from a time in human history when the challenges of life were largely physical and the perseverance tended to pay off. So even though that was then and this is now, our brains really haven't caught up. If you gave up, you didn't eat. I mean, that, that's the way that our brains began to be hardwired. The guy who gave up, by the way, was also booted out of the tribe, which is an entirely different podcast and one that I almost, I, I almost recorded today, but uh, about why we care so much about what others think. I mean, again, these things are hardwired. So when, when our goal was survival as a species, we could not quit. I mean, you, you just could not do it. So even the ability to quit is kind of a luxury that is, uh, that is relatively new to the human brain. So our brain has not caught up. So once you focus on the fact that you're much more likely to stay long past the expiration date than you, uh, than you are about to leave the party too early. And uh, again, that's according to, I couldn't take credit for that quote. I love that it was by Peg Stoop. But let me read that again. Once you focus on the fact that you're much more likely to stay long past the expiration date than you are to leave the party too early, you need to take a close look at the habits of mind that are blurring your vision and making you think that you should just wait it out a little bit longer and see how things turn out. So she came up with a list of the most common biases and thoughts that keep us stuck. Number one, you're focused on the time and energy that you've already invested. This one is huge. Um, its fancy name is the sunk cost fallacy, and she says it's universal. You start thinking about leaving a relationship or a job, and all you can think of is the time you've already put into it. Um, how many of you have done this before? You know, it's like, well, have I been at that job so long? You know, if I, what if? What if I leave tomorrow, and all of a sudden the place explodes, like in a good way? Um, then I'm going to kick myself about it, so we just invest more time. Or in a relationship, honestly, and this one isn't meant to be a relationship uh, issue or relationship podcast, but... You know, there are people that are in relationships that uh, that just keep thinking it's going to get better if I just hang in here or I've spent so much time in it. But if the relationship or the job no longer makes you happy or the work fills you with dread, uh, this isn't rational thinking. Staying even longer won't help you cope with the time that you now consider to be wasted or lost. But people do it all the time. So, again, it's this sunk cost fallacy. And I think about this all the time. Uh, I have a friend of mine who talked about once you go to a restaurant and let's say you order a meal and you don't necessarily like the meal. And then there's this concept of, well, I, I bought it. I got to finish it. Well, you've already paid the money. That's a sunk cost. So at that point, it's not really going to do you much more than just pile on some calories and uh, maybe cause you to have some, I don't know, not very pleasant uh, memory burps a little bit later on if you just keep cramming down this food that you don't really like. 
So, so the concept of wasting money, I mean, uh, it's a sunk cost. The concept of wasting time, you know, you've already invested this time, you've already invested this money, move on, right? Um, there's, I mean, it brings up this thought of me sitting there eating expired uh, key lime yogurt because I thought I'd like it without trying it, and I had bought it. So uh, sunk cost, let's throw that yogurt away, right? So the number two thing that Peg Stoop talks about is your eyes are trained on positive cues. I love this concept as well. She says a combination of biases, being overly optimistic and loss averse, she says make for a heady cocktail, which uh, combined with intermittent reinforcement act is the granddaddy of all super glues. And you should become familiar with this word or this term, intermittent reinforcement. So this is a concept that a early therapist named B.F. Skinner discovered. And I love this one. He said, when rats were pushing a lever for food, and they were rewarded some of the time, as, as opposed to either all the time or none of the time, then the rats would even try harder for longer. So think about that. So when we get this these intermittent rewards, this intermittent reinforcement, then the, the data is there to show that we're actually going to hang in there longer. So, um, you know, this is the, our, our brains are just kind of going this way. And and so we, Peg Stoop says, you know, well, fellow rats, this is precisely the predicament that we find ourselves in. The one day that the boss says something that for once doesn't cut you off at the knees or the time that your beloved actually does something that you've been begging him or her to do. Suddenly you're no longer heading for the door, but you're settling in for a spell and you're totally uh, now you're now you're convinced. OK, things are going to work. And, and this intermittent reinforcement is something I see again in counseling often where someone will say, yeah, but sometimes he's so good. And so we hang on to that. But sometimes he's so good when, you know, it would be a lot easier if he was never good or even better. How about if for the most part, he was always good. If We kind of gave him the tools to know how to meet your emotional needs. So, all right. Number three, um, Peg Stoop says being thwarted makes the heart grow fonder. And I did not remember this Greek myth, but she says, remember the Greek myth about Tantalus, from which our word tantalizing derives. The gods punished him by having him stand under a tree, and its fruit was just out of reach and close to flowing waters, which receded every time he tried to quench his thirst. So it turns out that when we realize that we are uh, likely to fail at a job or a relationship or anything else, we begin to see that goal is even more valuable than it was initially. And so that is kind of this fascinating thing, right? Something that's just out of our reach. I mean, we just play to this, I can get it. If I just try harder, if I just focus, and that if I can just try harder is, again, one of the things I see in therapy often are when people just kind of, they, they get this uh, glassy-eyed stare, they look off to the distance, maybe to, to the side of me, and they just think, I just got to try harder. I, I just got to keep going. I just got to try harder. And that concept is, if you find yourself constantly saying, I just got to try, I just got to keep going, I just got to just, just got to try harder, is it this thing that is just out of reach, which then, you know, it puts you in this, uh, you are... Um, Tantalus, you are trying to, to get this thing that is never, you're never going to quite get it. Number four, um, Peg Stoop calls it FOMO. And many of you have probably heard that, the fear of missing out. She actually says, or more like the fear of making a mistake. Fear of missing out or FOMO is not a scientific term, but it is, it is very applicable here. So some people are naturally better at quitting and more confident about when to let go than others. So you have to figure out which camp you fall into. Who are you? And and people who are largely motivated by challenges and gear up to meet them, uh, they do relatively little second guessing. And there's some work that's been done by Andrew Elliott and Todd Thrash. And so they say that those people who are, are motivated by these challenges, who they just get themselves all in a lather and they are going to take on any challenge, these people are motivated by approach goals. So they are going to approach a task and just say, let's do this. They're, they are, they are, 
a little there. I mean, we, let's just face it. They're better at getting unstuck and moving forward. On the other hand, there are people who look at the, the landscape of life and they see life as largely a bunch of mistakes to be avoided. And again, these are just part of maybe who your core being is or, or your values. And this isn't meant as a term of judgment, but this is a way to kind of figure out what is the best way for you to go. So if people see the life as this uh, landscape of, of things to be avoided, then they are motivated by avoidance goals or, you know, what do I need to make sure that I avoid versus those approach goals? The people that say, let's do this, you know, what's ahead of me? What's, uh, you know, what's what what's coming up next and, and how do I overcome it? So the people that are more avoidance goals driven, they're not comfortable taking risks and they're even more conservative in terms of loss. So they are motivated by fear of failure. How many of us have used that phrase before? Are we more, are we working in this camp of um, avoidance goals? So keep in mind that we're all motivated by approach and avoidance at various times. It isn't just as clearly as black and white as that. But think of how you would generally classify yourself and uh, in this exercise peg soup says please be as honest as you can and i honestly feel like these stories are sometimes what can keep somebody stuck so you'll you'll go read an article or even hear a podcast or even what i'm talking about of being 10 years in the software industry and then finding my love as a therapist and never looking back then people will say okay then i need to do something like that too or you'll hear about somebody that you know st- stayed in a company for 25 years and then on year 26 the company went public and they became bazillionaires so then somebody's going to hear that story and go Oh my gosh, I got to stay at work in my company or the person that, you know, they, they quit a job and they had nothing to turn to. And then all of a sudden that was the motivation they needed to find the job that they had always dreamed of. So, and these are stories that motivate us, but that doesn't mean that those are necessarily going to be your story. So again, you have to figure out where you are um, and what makes you tick. And, and are you, again, are you avoidant? Um, are you somebody who is saying, you know, more of this kind of let's do this? Are you approach goals oriented? Or are you avoidant goal oriented? One study by Heather Lynch and Linda Levine had participants self-report on whether they were approach or avoidance oriented and then set them to a task of solving three sets of seven anagrams. Already it gives me anxiety because I don't know if I could even solve an anagram. But here's what's kind of interesting. Unbeknownst to the participants, the first anagram was unsolvable. How wild is that to know that, right? And since the test was timed and you had to do the anagrams in order, so you had a series of seven anagrams. And yet uh, your, the task was to solve three of them, but the first one was unsolvable. So giving up on that first anagram was absolutely crucial to success. Already, what does that kind of spark in you? Are you somebody that you know, uh-oh, I was going to be stuck on the first one forever? Or would you have given up on the first one and moved on to the second one? Well, guess what? As the researchers hypothesized, the approach-oriented gave up and moved on. So when they were looking at this thing like, all right, let's do this. I got I to gotta figure out three out of these seven. It's timed. As soon as they figured out that they can't get through the first one, then let's move on to the second one. While the avoidance oriented kept trying to solve the first one and they got more and more agitated. So then there was a second experiment using the same scenario with the unsolvable anagram and it confirmed the findings. So we had we have the data. So rather than rely on self-reporting, the goal was then framed as attain success for half the group is and, and avoid failure for the other half. So those primed to avoid failure kept trying to solve that unsolvable anagram. Um, when they were instructed not to fail, they were so focused on not failing that they couldn't recognize the things that could be solved. So kind of ironic, right? So so sometimes, um, Peg Stoop says, sometimes cultural wisdom aside, grit or just like hanging in there and sticking to itness just results in banging your head against the wall. So are you the person that's going to sit there in that first anagram of life? See how deep I got there? 
and uh, just keep in, until it's unsolvable and just drive yourself crazy? Or are you looking at uh, what's in front of you right now? And if it's if it seems unsolvable, you know, it, to you, are you the type of person that says, all right, what's next? You know, let's let's this one isn't working. So what's next? So if you've successfully tackled your habits of mind, uh, as Peg Stoop says, all the way to the ground, what's next on the agenda to ensure the timing and execution are optimal? She says, try the following. Number one, get a beat on your emotions. I love this. She says, the worst possible scenario is that you stayed so long in your situation, whether it's a relationship or work, that it reduces you to a quivering mass of reactivity. Think about that one. Um, do you become this quivering mass of reactivity? She says, don't set yourself up, and I love this, for the straw that broke the camel's back moment. And I think a lot of people do that. They're like, man, if he does one more thing, you know, don't set yourself up for that because that's more reactionary um, because you don't want that. Uh, all of a sudden now I'm storming out the door because as, uh, as Peg said, not only will it slam behind you, and then she says, bridges burned anyone, but you will be taking a load of emotional and cognitive baggage with you. Instead of it proactively or instead of uh, let's do this kind of approach, um, you're going to take a, I, okay, they finally did it. They finally broke me. So we don't want you broken. You can you can kind of take control of the situation. So she said most people end up um, trading one kind of stuck for another when they quit in this way, in that uh, straw that broke the camel's back way. So these are the people who end up wrecking their interviews for a new job because now they're telling all the bad things about their former employers. Or, and I love this one, these are the people that are going out on a first date and launching into lengthy diatribes about their ex-lovers or spouses. You don't want to be that person, right? Number two, she says, motivate yourself. Remember that quitting isn't an end in, uh, in and of itself. It's a pathway to a new destination. Disengaging from a goal is a process that ends with engaging in a new one. And so work on strengthening your motivation to get to this new place, to let go of the old one. And this one's important, and I will be so honest with you. I have been tracking down, I went to a training so long ago where the person that was providing the training gave this data, and they talked about the data behind change, and they talked about this percentage. The percentage of people that uh, not only adapted but just thrived in change was so high, 70 80%, whatever it was. And the person just laid out this narrative of, because when you change, when you have this like focused, um, more intentional change, then you're in this place with you know new people, new restaurants, new streets, uh, new running trails, new theaters, new stores. All these things kind of bring this change, this hope, this kind of renewal. It, it kind of goes against that pop psychology view of running away from your problems. But if you are intentionally heading toward new opportunities, and I know that's just a different way to frame it, then that is uh, there's nice data there that says that, hey, you're going to be okay. Um, number three, uh, Peg says, plan and use if-then thinking. I like this too. She said, the best way to get your brain off cruise control and stop those automatic biases is to make a plan that not only sets your new goals, but anticipates possible setbacks and pitfalls along the way. So write your plan down. Research shows that it'll help you articulate your thoughts with greater clarity. Um, map out scenarios and think them through. This isn't a, if he does this, you know, that's it. That's the final straw that breaks the camel's back. But, you know, you can mix, uh, as Peg Stoop says, some realism and even some pessimism to tamp down our tendency to overstate our abilities or to be overly optimistic. So um, that's uh, that's a good idea to kind of write down with clarity some, you know, if this happens, then this this is going to happen. Uh, number four, prepare for the stress of the transition. And in all of the work that I was uh, looking for, any of the research that I found around this, it just just know that there's there's always going to be. And I think uh, one of the episodes I did with Nate Christensen, we talked about uh, uh, Kierkegaard, where he, basically the no matter what decision you make, there's always going to be this uh, feeling of I think it's regret 
of the one that you didn't make. So just make room for that. It's normal. So she says, just as there are those who are better at letting go than others, some are more skilled and confident at managing the inevitable turbulence of major change. So just be aware. Research by a woman named Patricia Linville showed that people with a more complex sense of self and more varied group of activities that define their sense of self did better in times of transition uh, and stress and recovered from setbacks more easily than those who primarily define themselves by a single activity. So if what you're thinking of quitting is central to your self-definition uh, or your identity, you need to be prepared that it is going to bring about some stress. So, for example, she says that if your career and the rewards you've reaped from it are central to your sense of self, change is going to be harder than it would be for somebody who's not really invested in that area or defines himself or herself by numerous other roles in addition, as some, maybe as somebody as a parent or friend or community leader, gardener, golfer, that sort of thing. So, so that's one of those things where I feel like even as you're preparing, one of the takeaways there would be make sure and raise your emotional baseline. Uh, make sure that you're already engaged in self-care. And as you kind of raise that emotional baseline, you're doing more things that will help you um, be a better you, then that's going to put you in a better position to decide whether or not this is indeed the time to quit or not. So um, just to kind of end with that, Peg Stoop says, despite the cultural mantra or mantra, quitting an endeavor or relationship which is no longer making you happy, um, is failing and cannot be fixed, or which no longer meets your needs as a healthy response, and here's the key, as long as it's the first step toward a new goal and destination. And I know that if we're putting that in terms, in context of relationships, then the marriage therapist to me be, would be remiss if I didn't say that first, let's kind of process those things through acceptance and commitment therapy of, um, you know, what are you avoiding? Uh, the brain wants uh, to keep you from being uncomfortable. So if in your relationship, you first need to make sure you have explored everything you can, marriage therapy, better ways to communicate, Go seek that help first. But And if it's even in the world of career counseling, um, there are people that can help you talk about that or work your way through there as well. So uh, what do we learn today? That quitting is not always as heavy or negative as just kind of the word implies. And that um, there are ways where you can, as Peg, uh, I used to call her Peg Stoop the whole time, it's Peg Streep, uh, Peg Streep, Mastering the Art of Quitting. Um, as she said in her book, Mastering the Art of Quitting, Why It Matters in Life, Love, and Work is that uh, there may not be a magic answer, but there are a lot of things that you can go through to make sure and set yourself up to, to know that you are doing the right thing for you. And uh, that remembering that your brain is perhaps the biggest obstacle. And, and it's this whole concept of the way that we think. Um, this, you know, the, the perseverance and hard work and never quit and those sort of things that those come from this time where that was necessary for our survival. And while those are still wonderful qualities, if we are now locked in on something that, that we truly are not happy with or miserable in, then that is going to be part of what leads to this overall feeling of we're not, uh, we're feeling stuck, um, that we're, we're just not doing all we need to do. And, uh, and we went through some of the things like sunk cost fallacy, I mean, you know, that one's that one where you're focused on the time and energy that you've already invested. And that, that one just is, I remember the first time I heard that even in the concept of therapy of just, you know, just because you put time or just because you put money or effort into something doesn't mean that then you have to continue to pour time or money or effort into that. And remember that your eyes are already trained on positive cues, a confirmation bias, um, that that's the part where, you know, you want to see the best and that work by B.F. Skinner, what he talked about with the rats of, you know, when they pull the little lever and food comes out sometimes that, I mean, that's the thing where that keeps us even wanting things even more. And, uh, the whole Greek myth, Tantalus, 
that um, being thwarted makes our heart grow fonder. When we something is just out of reach, there is this tendency that we think, okay, I got to work harder and harder to get it. But it might, uh, you know, I know we might be four foot two and uh, got a seven foot reach. I guess that's a pretty long arm still, right? Um, and the fruit's sitting at 10 feet. We don't have a ladder or anything else. Uh, and so we might need to just move on and look for uh, the next tree. And then that fear of missing out or fear of making a mistake, um, that went back to that whole concept of, uh, you know, do you have more of an approach goal and temperament or an avoidance goal and temperament? And uh, that isn't to say that you are locked in black or white either way, but, uh, but you know, what's your tendency? Are you a, all right, let's do this kind of person? Or are you a, I don't know, what are the, what are the, what are the potential disasters here? And think of that, uh, that study around the anagrams. Would you just lock into that first anagram and never let it go? Or if you knew that you just had to complete three out of the seven, would you be okay to say, all right, this one is frustrating me, but there are plenty more. I got to move on. All right. Hey, thanks for uh, taking the time today to talk about um, quitting. And uh, hopefully we've kind of debunked some, uh, some stereotypes or myths around quitting. And uh, if you are in a position where you are looking at um, quitting a job and again, or a relationship, that sort of thing, uh, there, there are people out there that you can help. Make sure that you're bouncing, bouncing this off of somebody other than just your um, wonderful intentioned, what I call sometimes the peanut gallery. Because again, remember, there's even some deep psychology there of that they want to provide answers so that you'll keep coming back to them because everyone wants to be loved and needed. All right, that's all I've got for you today. I will see you next time on the next episode of The Virtual Couch. Emotions flying past our heads and out the other end. The pressures of the daily grind is wonderful. Elastic waste and rubber ghost. I'm floating.